Hi, and welcome to episode number 15 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rody and Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Ken Johnson. Ken is the Director of Marketing and Product Architect at Teldine LaCroix. He's an expert on how users interact with scopes. Join me in my conversation where I catch up with Ken and gain some user perspectives on what's important when it comes to picking out a scope. Hey, Ken, thanks so much for joining us today for our podcast. And uh, in full disclosure, I have to tell everybody that um, I'm still a uh, fellow at Teldine LaCroix. Uh, and I've worked with you for, I don't know, a dozen years while I've been at Teldine LaCroix. And, and right now you are the Director of Marketing and uh, Product Architect at Teldine LaCroix. So welcome to for joining us today at, uh, for our, uh, our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I uh, will say, uh, Eric, it's been a pleasure to work with you for 12 years. You're, you're a fellow because you, we don't really need to do anything, but let you get out of your way and let you do your thing. So, <laughs> Well, I appreciate for, that, flex, that flexibility. It, the engineering community for all these and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, now, and you have your new title, Product Architecture. And so you've been involved in designing you know, Teledyne LaCroix is one of the what, the third largest manufacturer of scopes, I guess, after, yes. what is it, Keysight and Tech and and LaCroix? Correct. And you put Roden Schwartz in a mix too nowadays, and it'd be hard to say, you know, where everybody exactly lines up. But Tech and Keysight are definitely one and two. And then, you know, LaCroix and Roden Schwartz are, you know, three and four. Okay. So you're you're one of the product architects in the major, and a major player in scopes. Well, I used to be. Yeah. So I, I used to get quite involved in, in uh, going to meet with customers and working with them to understand you know, what their needs were around uh, oscilloscope products uh, and applications. So I've, I've really I've product managed and defined products from a bandwidth range from like 200 megahertz on up to, you know, 65 gigahertz. So um, a huge range of different oscilloscopes with different types of users with different expectations. And it's been a lot of fun always to just really sit down and listen to people for extended periods of time uh-huh. and not judge, but just hear what they want and why they want it and how they use it and how they use competitor scopes and what they like about those. And it's been a great uh, learning experience to just really understand how people drive scopes and how scopes drive their behavior and vice versa, so, so to speak. Well, before we get into those details, I wanted to find out a little bit about your background of how you got to this position. How long is it you've been at Teldine LaCroix? I've been at Teldine LaCroix since uh, 2000, so okay. more than 20 years. And um, I, I don't do much product architecture nowadays, so um, I have a slightly different role nowadays, but um, I, uh, I'm still very much involved with the product marketing team and new product development and whatnot. And uh, my role nowadays is more on what I'd call more on the outbound side, you know, creating content, collateral, helping people understand and connecting with people so they can understand the solutions we have. Because we're not we're not the number one player in oscilloscopes. Uh, but when people generally find out who we are and what we offer, we generally get considered. So, you know, the challenge is really to make sure that people know what we do and what we're good at and see if we can get them to decide it matches up with what they need. So in, you know, while we're talking about the kind of the market segment for scopes and we've got the big players that are out there, do you, do you feel like the market saturated? In other words, are there still 
a lot of customers out there that don't have scopes that are looking or is it really competition between all the players and you get a finite limited number of, uh, of customers out there? Yeah, it's probably, you know, when you think about it, it's probably like the market for people who have cars, you know, the car market, like, you know, mostly if you need a car, you probably already have one or, you know, they exist. Um, you're borrowing one, you're renting one, you have some experience of using a car once in a while, you know, unless you live in New York City and take the subway all the time. <laughs> um, and then there's, you know, some people that regrettably pass on in any given year and they're replaced by people who graduate from college and are new. Uh, but even they have used scopes. They, they know what it is. You know, so it's it's a pretty self-contained market. It's not growing tremendously. It's not shrinking tremendously. And uh, the scope is still the go-to tool, you know, for, for any engineer. And and yeah. to, for some, it's a very personal experience. You know, they, they might move from company to company and demand that, you know, hey, if I'm going to accept this job offer, you got to agree to buy me this particular brand of scope. And we see that a lot. Uh, with our company in particular, because uh, we have so a very is, high brand preference. Is that a uh, a, pr- a personal preference because of the user interface, or is it a capability of the scope? Why why is there that that strong kind of bonding between the user and and their and their scope? Do you think? Well, you you, you really wish you could understand all the reasons why. <laughs> You'd be a genius if you could, but you know, I, I'd say it's it's built on things that, that might have been. Um, uh, they might have known about our product for many, many years, like historically, uh, Teledyne McCroy, McCroy back uh, when I joined the company was very well known for very deep memory or long memory. And we were very unique in that regard. No one else had the memories we did, you know, not just a little bit longer, but, you know, 10, 100 times longer memory. And it was usable, you know, to process data, you know, just just an indication um, back in the days, it used to be that some companies you'd only perform like one measurement like one rise time measurement on an acquisition that had, you know, hundreds of rise times in it. Um, or maybe they limited it to 75 where they'd only do an FFT on three mega points, you know, instead of, you know, 250 mega points or something like that. So in old days, some companies might've even had reasonable memory, but they didn't let you do much with it except look at it. Um, so we built a lot of preference over the years just because of our long memory and our ability to, to handle that memory and, and process it in a very, a very productive way. And, and, to give you a lot of different views of your signal in lots of different domains. So you can really dig down and dig deep. And that's not for every engineer. You know, I mean, I used to, you know, I used to joke internally, there were, you know, two, type, two types of scope users. There were viewers and there were analyzers. You know, and viewers, viewers really huh. wanted to look at something on the screen, a few edges, make some conclusion. And, you know, an analyzer might just grab, you know, hundreds of mega points of data uh, you know, it would look like a cheese block, as we would say on the screen, just a solid band of color for this acquisition. And then they put it through some math and try to understand something about it. And those were the analyzers. And I'd say, you know, historically, our market was the analyzer. So generally a, a more, um, let's say, a more seasoned engineer, a more curious engineer, not necessarily an older engineer, but someone just more seasoned, curious, mm. interested in really exploring their circuit and in ways that were um, a little orthogonal to someone who would be a viewer and just looking at a couple, you know, edges on a screen or something. So, you know, it's historical. Our, our historically our market, we do very well there. It's not every engineer, um, so we don't have the biggest market share in the world. But there are plenty of people like that, and they and they are very devoted to Lacroix and now Teledyne Lacroix products and oscilloscopes. And and it's quite often that they demand a Lacroix scope at a 
you know, Tektron at a company that primarily uses Tektronix scopes before they accept the job offer. So one of the differentiators is memory depth. Yeah. Um, what's yeah. another, you know, when someone's trying to trying to decide, you know, what scope am I going to get? What are, what are the yeah. other, some of the other differentiators that they're, they're going to be paying attention to? You know, certainly in the last 10 to 12 years, uh, resolution, you know, has become a big, big one. Um, you know, when I started at LaCroix, everything was 8-bit scopes. You know, that's what you got. That's what everybody had, unless it was some very specialized data acquisition system or something. You know, there were a few fringe players, a few fringe products, you know, that had more than that, but not really as a working bench scope, you know, that most people would consider an oscilloscope. So, uh, you know, now we, we came out with 12-bit products more than a dozen years ago, and um, other companies have products that you know, make claims at or beyond that. Um, you know, I think customers are very much aware of now that you can get much more than eight bits of resolution and understand the value of it. And, you know, we had a lot of debates internally when we were bringing out higher resolution oscilloscopes about how much we had to justify the need for this crazy extra amount of resolution, you know, 16 times more resolution. And yeah. pretty much customers just told us right away, uh, yeah, look for a little more money. Uh, that looks a whole lot better. So that's what I want. And um, there's some very good reasons to have it, though. And, and you've, you've done a lot of work with uh, power integrity and continue to. And that's one area where, you know, being able to resolve small signal differences very well and very accurately is very helpful. And um, so that's a big market for it. And there's lots of others, too. So resolution. You know, I have to say, you know, full disclosure, I I started using 12-bit. Um, actually, the very first scope I ever bought when I worked at Bell Labs was a Nicolay scope. Oh, and yeah. Didn't, didn't LaCroix buy Nicolay? Were there some No, they just there? went out of business, I think. Yeah, they were in okay. Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. They were a good company okay. in the day. But it was, I, it was a 12-bit scope. Low bandwidth, yeah. but it was a 12-bit yeah, yeah. scope. And I have to say that um, since I started using 12-bit scopes, um, uh, with um, the HDO family, and I've gone. I teach a, a lab here at CU, and we use eight-bit uh, scopes. And I tell yeah. you, there's a huge difference in just the look and feel of the screen and the quality of the measurements that you get yeah. between twelve-bit and eight-bit. I always say, if you've tried twelve-bit, you just can't go back to eight-bit. <laughs> It'd be like trying to watch an old console TV, four eighty P resolution or something. You know, it's just this jarring yeah. to have to go yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, I remember I mean, those Nicolay yeah. products. I, I used to, we used to with use the blue screen. High voltage business. It was an RTD 710, I think is what it was. And it was a 10 bit, 100 megahertz with pretty uh -huh. long memory, which was quite unusual for its day. Uh, but yeah, they did some very good things with, with higher resolution scopes. They had a nice niche for themselves for a long, long time. Yeah. And so now all of the HDO family scopes, the mid range scopes, are all 12 bit. With Most of them. Yeah, we still make okay. some 8-bit scopes because some customers, um, you know, an 8-bit scope is still less expensive than a 12-bit scope. Um, so we still make some scopes at, at what I call mid-range bandwidths, you know, 1, 2, 4 gigahertz, 500 megahertz, stuff like that. Um, and people buy them, you know, but it's, it's you know, slowly being supplanted by 12-bit scopes as more people see what the capabilities are. And the price, the price difference is not crazy. Um, and, you know, 12 bits is rapidly, you know, not rapidly, but gradually moving up the bandwidth curve. You know, we go up to 8 gigahertz at 12 bits now. Um, so, um, you know, we'll go higher. I mean, it's only going to be a matter of time before we have, 
you know, more higher resolution and higher bandwidth. I mean, it's just the, the way things work, right? And these days, so, would you say that um, LaCroix is one of the leaders in offering the higher higher bandwidth 12 gigahertz, uh, or higher bandwidth 12-bit vertical resolution? Uh, absolutely. It- so there's a lot of claims out there. So you have to be careful about what people are claiming. There's people that claim more than 12 bits. Um, when they do, it's their they're, they're um, sacrificing sample rate or bandwidth or maybe number of channels or some combination of all those things to to filter the signal. You know, basically it's software filtering, you know, so they, they just provide less bandwidth uh, by sacrificing sample rate and they're applying some sort of filter. And in but, doing but, so, you can increase the resolution yeah. quite a bit, but you sacrifice other things. By filter, you mean oversampling? So you average, you get you increase the effective number of bits? Well, oversampling, if you're really oversampled, that's a great way to do it because then you can reduce the sample rate, you know, through some method to, uh, you know, to filter and achieve a cleaner signal. Um, And so if you start with a lot higher sample rate than you really need for that bandwidth, then you can filter it. You know, you can have the sample rate a few times and achieve quite a quite a good noise reduction um, and, and claim a higher resolution than what you might have otherwise had. But in doing so, you're sacrificing bandwidth. You know, at some point you're going to start sacrificing bandwidth. You're definitely sacrificing sample rate, you know, once you start reducing it. Um, so, you know, there's trade-offs and those trade-offs may be things you can live with. You know, it's not, they're not bad. They're not inherently bad um, to make those trade-offs, but you just have to be aware that there are companies that make those kind of trade-offs and you have to know what you're getting. Um, the advertised resolution may not happen at the same time as the advertised bandwidth and the advertised sample rate and the advertised number of channels. Put it that way. So you have to know what all the trade-offs are. We we have yeah. we use uh, a technology where we have a very low signal to noise front end with a um, very low signal to noise uh, and high performance ADC, and we also have a really well designed system architecture to minimize any noise. You know, generated as the signals traveling through the signal path, minimize any pickup interference, anything else. So you know, if you do all those things well then you don't have to play the reduce the sample rate game, you know, reduce the bandwidth game or filter everything to get lower, to get higher resolution. You just have it naturally. So we have 12 bits naturally, you know, 12 bits at every bandwidth and sample rate point all the time, whereas other companies uh, don't, you know, you generally get that through sacrifices. One of the key ingredients. Key key site, just to make a note, you know, key site is kind of in between. They have 10 bits. And I'd say key site, you know, the 10 bits they advertise, you get that all the time. You know, it's it's a it's a 10 bits all the time, but it's a little less than 12, but they reliably give you what they advertise all the time. In order to get that 12 bit in the LaCroixcopes, um, the ADC has to be pretty fast. Is there anything special that is done in the technology under the hood to get the faster ADCs? Ugh, I'm really the wrong person to ask, <laughs> ask that question, question of. Um, you know, it's more about making sure that the analog portion of the ADC is clean, you know, has low noise, you know, and then, you, you know, you have to have a good performing ADC as well. But, you know, if, if you have a good performing analog section, then you're off to a pretty good start. Um, and and how, how we build the chip internally, there's people I have beers with or whatever that can tell you all that stuff, but they're not here on this call today. So I don't, I don't want to intrude on what they know best. I'd probably get it wrong. Well, I have Roger on my list to uh, interview sometime go. in the future too. He'd be a good person. So he, he's he's got the that information. Um, yep. So you mentioned a couple different issues. You, you talked about memory depth. You talked mm-hmm. about the vertical resolution. Uh, any yep. other important differentiators among scopes? 
Um, I'd say, you know, there's a couple other things. I, I, some of these things are probably what I call preferences, you know, like user interfaces are the kinds of things that, you know, there's, there's no way to subjectively, objectively evaluate a user interface in a way that everybody would be happy with, but people have their preferences. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there's, um, some people prefer one user interface more than others. I'd say, um, I'd say everybody's at, at a pretty good level. I'd say, generally speaking, when I used to speak a lot with customers, this is going back three or four years ago now, is, you know, when I kind of switched up my role. But generally speaking, what most companies would say about LaCroix was they really, they liked their user interface. It was very powerful. It was very unlimited, uh, not very limiting. So very unlimiting in terms of pretty much any tool we had in our toolbox, you could kind of combine that with any other tool and it would work, you know, and there were no limitations on memory or anything else. And, and we had a lot of nice features that made the scope operate a lot like a you know a mobile phone with swipe and touch and things like that that were really very nice and people really liked. And so there was, you know, of course, I'm probably biased, but there was a little bit of preference that I sensed for our user interface. Um, you know, as a user, I used to have I, a very miserable user interface, in my, in my opinion, <laughs> from, from, you know, going back 20 years ago or so, but they've recently updated theirs. I'd say they're they seem fairly acceptable now. Um, and Keysight, you know, has had the same basic interface for many many years. It seems okay. It's still okay. It was okay, you know, twenty years ago. Um, yeah, but it's it's all it's all personal preference, and a lot of it is based on just what you know and what you're used to. You know, if you're used to driving yeah. a Toyota and you get into a different car, and you know, the windshield wiper control operates the opposite way, and you know, everything else, it'll drive you crazy for a little. You know, sometimes it just takes you a while to get used to some of those things, you know, and you don't want to have to get used to it. You just want to get in your car and drive it and not have to worry about, you know, where things are. Well, you know, I have to say as a user, you know, since I've been using a, a touchscreen interface so much, mm -hmm. when I get in front of a scope that doesn't have it, I keep pushing the screen, hoping yeah. to, to have it operate that way because it is such a convenient uh, interface. <laughs> We used uh, to have somebody work at LaCroix. You mentioned touchscreens and touching. You probably know this person, but if you ever reached for his scope screen or his laptop screen or whatever, you would literally get your hand slapped away from on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> you maybe think about that, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty used to it, and and um, you know, I still can't give up the front panel, but I could I could foresee a day when a scope doesn't have a front panel anymore. You know, it's just uh -huh. all touchscreen. And it's sort of, I, I, you know, I tell the engineers at LaCroix that um, the first self-driving car will not come complete without a steering wheel. There will be a steering wheel on it. It will take time uh -huh. for people to give that up. And that's kind of where we are right now with scopes. You can do everything with the touchscreen, but that doesn't mean people want to get rid of the front panel. They still want that reassurance of having a front panel to, to do their the things they're used to. You know, I guess probably in our only lifetimes. The, the only way for a, a customer to really get a, a, a literally a feel for the user interface, they got to get the scope in front of them and play with it. Sounds like. Yeah. 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 To some extent. Yeah. And they all drive a little bit differently. Um, not just in where things are located and, you know, how you access certain things, you know, it's just sort of like windows versus Mac, you know, in some ways, you know, if you're used to using one, you can figure the other out, but there's a bit of investment in time. Yeah. And, now, um, do you, do you, I know that, um, uh, LaCroix came out with Maui Studio some time ago as mm -hmm. a kind of a software uh, version of the scope. Um, yep. uh, the run. Do, do you find that's a useful vehicle for someone to get 
comfortable with the user interface or, or get a feel feel for it? I think so. I don't I don't have any sense of how many people do that. Uh, but you can down yeah. So what Eric's talking about is a program that's basically our scope software. And you can go to our website. You can download it. There's a free version, or you can pay a little bit of money, and then you get basically the souped up version that is every bit as capable as our most advanced oscilloscope. You know, so it's um, and so that's a that's a great tool to use to like just sort of get familiar with what our scope drives like, um, especially if you get the advanced one. And um, yeah, I, I don't have a feeling for whether people are using that to evaluate or get used to to us or not. It's a great tool to share things. And, you know, if you know somebody uses the LaCroix scope, they can send you some files and you can load them up on Maui Studio and it'll show you everything that they saw on their scope. And you can, you know, post-process things a little different than they did even, you know, and send something back to them if you wanted to. So it's nice. It's nice for that. Um, I think it's nice because, you know, we used to internally to the building, we used to always be able to just download the software and load it on our laptop because we were on the New York network. And it was frustrating for users when we go out in the field and I'd be like, oh, let me boot up my simulator on my laptop and work with that. And they'd be like, can I buy that? I'm like, yeah, regrettably, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, now you can, which is nice. Yeah. You know, I have to say it is a, a really nice way of, of uh, kind of playing around with data. Um, mm -hmm. that you get yeah. from someone else. You can import the, the lab notebook and literally this, the same data that was taken. And right. other than the fact it's not refreshing and so you're not seeing it over and over again, um, you still have access to all the different uh, functions and, uh, and math That's routines right. to analyze that data. Yeah, uh, so in fact, the Maui Studio went a little further. It actually imports the whole option scheme from where that data was collected. So if you sent me something and you had every option on your scope and I had none of it, I would still get temporary use of all those options so I could see it the same way you did, which is really pretty cool. Uh, mm -hmm. We just started doing that a couple of years ago, but that's a nice, that's a nice way to share information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the, uh, uh, that, that ability to uh, play with the, the scope as though you're sitting there in front of it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's on your computer. Yep. Um, now what I'm a strong advocate of is um, you want to, you need to build uh, the interface so that, that Maui Studio will talk to the PC sound card in your computer, so you can see the live data coming in. Because uh, 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 what does that mean? See the live data, like see well, the audio? It, well, a lot of companies have you know, actually the companies. There's a lot of free tools off the shelf that will use your PC sound card as a scope. You know, it's a sound oh. effect. It's a hundred kilobit per second or 100 kilo, oh, okay. yeah, kilo sample second ADC. It's typically oh. like 14, 16 bit resolution. And the ability to see live data, even though it's, it's pick up from your microphone, right? right but it's yeah. still live data. But to, the ability to see that on a scope interface gives you something immediately you can play with. I and, see. Okay. So and, sort of just sort of a way to simulate a, an input to the scope. Yeah. And, and more than just simulate. I mean, it's real input to the scope. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And you, you can use this low bandwidth. You're not going to you know solve any engineering problems with it. But you're going to do acoustic analysis, and you're going to right. get familiar with how the live features hmm. of the scope work. Yep. Um, and yep. I, you know, I've been advocating. I, I tell everybody I can <laughs> to do that because it is such a cool feature. If you've ever, <laughs> there's a uh, the low end one of the That's low end such scopes. An error. <laughs> like what but, Eric does on Sunday. But there, there, you know, I, I just find that, especially at the the introductory level, 
um, yeah. having that 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 dynamic interface with something going on in front of you yeah, and being yeah, able yeah. to adjust the controls, you, you see something real and you're getting a right. feel for the user interface. Um, yes. yeah. So I, uh, I've been a strong advocate of that, but but there's no profit in it. And, and so it's hard right. to, hard to get a lot of attention on it. Right. Yeah. It, it yes. has high coolness, but <laughs> not a lot problem. of, not a lot of money. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, it, uh, you know, as we finish up here, any other uh, kind of um, uh, issues that you think um, uh, customers should know about when they think about scopes and uh, what scope should I be getting or what am I missing in the, from the scope I've got? Yeah, I would, I would just say, um, you know, you should think of buying a scope as like buying a car, you know, test drive a few of them. You know, don't um, don't just stay with what you know, because what you know might not really be all that great. Once you see something else. So yeah, go and kick a few tires, so to speak, and test drive a few. Most companies are very willing to um, loan you a scope or drop one off, let you use it for a few days or come in and give you, you know, now the salespeople that most companies, I think, especially ours, are, are pretty knowledgeable about scopes. Um, they can, you know, give you some instruction over the phone even or whatever and get just get you going. Um, there's probably a 10 or 15 minute hurdle to learning a new scope, but if somebody can help guide you through it, um, you get through it pretty quick and then then you can have a great driving experience and try it out and see how you like it. I mean, you might find some things you really like about it. There's lots of things we do differently now in our products that, um, you know, we didn't do 15 or 20 years ago. And, um, and mostly in response to things we've heard from the marketplace over years. So things change. And so, you know, every five or 10 years when you go to buy a new scope or whatever, if you have the opportunity to kick the tires and look at something else, take advantage of it won't cost you anything except a little bit of your time. Well, Ken, thanks so much for those tips. Uh, pleasure to chat with you as always. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric. It's been fun. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Ken Johnson of Teldine LaCroix for joining us and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you check out all of our podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition.